0: Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible, please open it to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we will be. Right, converted at the age of 15, uh, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon began his preaching ministry at the age of 17, and at the ripe age of 19, his preaching reputation had as a, his, his reputation as a gifted preacher had really grown to the to the place that he was afforded the opportunity to uh, take a call to come to London to preach at uh, New Street uh, Chapel in, in London. And that, that call to preach as kind of a guest preacher would end up turning to him, offering him to be the pastor of that church at 19 years old. Spurgeon was an anomaly in his day. Though brilliant, almost, uh, we could say, genius-like mind and very well read, he possessed no theological uh, training, education, um, form, formally. And his preaching, which saw thousands come to Christ, it really lacked the, the scholarly and, we might say, prestigious smell of most of the pulpits of that day. His preaching remained really tied uh, to the sacred texts, and it was focused, and its fervor was fixed upon the glory of Christ, which God used mightily in Spurgeon's life. And not long, not long after he began as the pastor of uh, New Street. Uh, chapel, the 1,200-seat auditorium proved to be too small, as word quickly spread throughout London uh, regarding this young boy preacher, as he was referred to. And this led the, the church to look outside of their building for venues to accommodate the, the crowds that were coming while they had to do some renovations of their building. After renting a, a few larger venues, uh, eventually his church uh, decided to rent what was the music hall hall. In downtown London, with a seating capacity of some ten thousand people, um, but excitement really wasn't the only thing that spread regarding the name of Spurgeon. The criticism was swift and severe in the papers, uh, referring to him as a as a as a ranting charlatan, with crowds more fit for a circus than a church. And though he remained uh, really faithful. And committed to preaching the gospel to the lost in these large crowds, this really open and outright criticism, as you can imagine, weighed heavy upon his heart as a young man. And then on a Sunday evening, October October 19, 1856, with crowds packed into the hall, the unthinkable happened. With seats, stairways, and even windows full of people eager to hear this message of God's grace, someone began to yell fire. The galleries are giving way. The place is falling. And really with one, only one in and out exit, people obviously began to panic and rushing to the exits and trampling over one another. When all was said and done, seven people lost their lives and 28 others were severely injured. And yet, there was no fire. While nobody knows for sure, a name has never been discovered for sure, many believe It was one of Spurgeon's critics who intentionally yelled fire to try to spook his and disrupt his meeting. Obviously, I don't think they intended for what to happen ended up happening, but they wanted to bring shame upon Spurgeon and this large crowd that he had gathered. And the papers uh, were equally as harsh. These cruel words, I quote, come from the, the, the Daily Telegraph just a few days following this incident. Quote, when the mangled corpses had been carried away from the unhallowed and disgraceful scene, when husbands were seeking their wives and, and children, their mothers, in extreme agony and despair, the clink of money as it as it, feel, as it fell into the collection boxes grated harshly, miserably, on the ears of those who, we sincerely hope, have by this time conceived, for Mr. Spurgeon and his rantings, the profoundest contempt. As you can imagine... All this put the young preacher into a spiral of deep depression. Once he, one he even thought would, he would never reco- recover from to preach again. Reflecting on this situation later in life, he wrote these words. He said, quote, I refused to be comforted. Tears were my meat by day and dreams my terror by night. I felt as I had never felt before. My thoughts were all a case of knives cutting my heart in pieces Until a kind of stupor of grief ministered a mournful medicine to me, broke in pieces all asunder my thoughts, which had been to me a cup of delights, were like pieces of broken glass, the piercing and cutting miseries of my pilgrimage. Spurgeon would eventually be comforted by God's grace and climb back into his pulpit where he would preach faithfully for nearly the next 40 years. And become to history what we know today as the Prince of Preachers. But while Charles Spurgeon's life was no doubt marked by amazing feats of faith. And expressions of God's kind providence over his life. It was also tattered with bouts of deep depression. Of suffering. Anguish of the soul. Rejection and heartache. This morning we come to the close of Hebrews chapter 11 known as the great chapter of faith. For the past few weeks, we've been really considering this historic, what I've referred to as a a roll call, of the faithful or the righteous who live by faith. And the author has been intentional along the way to really provoke our perseverance in the faith, what chapter 11 is all about. And we've learned... Uh, That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We looked at a definition of faith in verse 1. We've we've learned that faith pleases God. And that faith enables us to become heirs of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Last week in verses 8 to 22, particularly through the life of Abraham, we surveyed really the future character of faith and the promises that belong to those who walk by faith. But now in these... These final verses, as we wrap up this great chapter, the author is going to clarify a true persevering faith by bringing it into focus in terms of suffering. Persevering faith believes it will be rewarded even if it's despised, even if it's rejected, even if it's hated by this world. This was the testimony of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's life. And that is the testimony of every life who embraces the walk of faith in Jesus Christ. I want us to see this from our text this morning, that by faith we persevere through this life with the people of God, by the perfection of God's Son. That by faith we, we're called to persevere and we're persevere through this life with all the difficulties and heartaches and sufferings that accompany us and we're to do that with the people of God. But we do so by the perfection that we find in Jesus Christ, his Son, God's Son. I'm tempted to go back and read from verse one all the way to the end of the chapter, but we have tacos awaiting us afterwards. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pick up where I left off. But I would encourage you to take a moment and read this chapter aloud if you haven't, all the way through, and just hear the Authors flow of thought. I'm going to begin here in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. They were sold in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they shall not be made perfect. Father, we pause after the reading of your word, before the exposition of your word. And God, we pause because we need your help. We don't want to mere just look through a text and pull some grammatical things apart. We want your Holy Spirit to teach us by your word more deeply who you are, that we might be able to walk by faith. So, God, we ask that by Your Spirit, through Your Son, to the glory of Your great name, You would use these next 35, 40, 45, 50 minutes to raise us up into Christ. And, God, anyone who doesn't know You today, help them look to Christ and see that He is the only author and the only perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. True faith perseveres. That's been the author's claim throughout the book of Hebrews, that true faith perseveres. And and, and that is the, the point of this chapter. Back in chapter 10, verse 36, right before we jumped into chapter 11, the author said plainly to the audience and to us, you have need of endurance, perseverance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And persevering faith is clarified for us this morning in this lengthy kind of portion of Scripture in at least three ways. We could provide a lot more, but we'll at least look at three. So the first one is this, that persevering faith requires proper freedom. Now, if Abraham, as we looked at last week, was considered the the father of Israel's faith, then Moses would have to be the goat, the greatest of all time, no doubt. Moses was Israel's greatest prophet. He was the one who received the law of God. He was the one whom God used to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. God's great act of redemption through the Exodus, which marked Moses' life, is a story of faith from start to finish. But it's a faith that required, that was built out of a proper fear. If you remember back in the Exodus story, we dealt with this issue of fear often in the life of Moses and in that narrative. But the Exodus story begins not, at least here, not with Moses' faith, but with his parents' faith in verse 1. It says, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. In fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. The Israelites uh, multiplied rapidly while they were in slavery in Egypt. To the point, their numbers became a threat to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh responded to this threat by issuing a genocide of all the Jewish boys. He, he ordered first uh, them to be really slain on the birthing stool. But when that didn't work out, he ordered them all to be cast into the Nile River. And acting in faith, Moses' family hid their son... For three months. Instead of following the king's edict. And when they could hide him no longer. They crafted this plan. To really present Moses to Pharaoh's daughter. By way of a a basket upon the Nile. While she was bathing. And it worked. Moses was rescued. And his life spared. To be adopted by the royal family. And all this came about. Because they saw that the child was beautiful. The text says. This word translated beautiful. Here speaks to to more than an attractive appearance. We find it again in Stephen's description of this event regarding Moses in Acts 7, verse 20, where he says that uh, Moses was beautiful to God. But it communicates something of a mark of excellence upon this child. or uh, Maybe as your translation you have in front of you says, he was no ordinary child. So rather than fearing Pharaoh, Moses' parents' faith led them to see Moses as unusual. There was a distinct mark upon him. They knew that something special was uh, was, was about this child, that God had his hand on this young man. So they did not fear the king's edict. By faith, they preserved young Moses who grew up to become a man of faith, as verse 21 will go on and tell us about. Just kind of make a sidebar kind of note here that Moses was preserved by his parents' faith. And parents we have a lot of soon-to-be parents in our church. I'll just say that. As we raise our kids in an increasingly secularizing culture, that if we it's easy to, uh, to be to find despair and to be overcome with. We should not be overcome with fear and discouragement. And we should not dismiss or downplay the power of our kids seeing simple faith lived out in front of them. Moses would eventually preach and practice what was deposited in him at home. The greatest deposit we can give our kids is an example of faith, pointing them to who Jesus is. And Moses was raised up as a man of faith. We see in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses' faith compelled him to reject his place in the royal Egyptian family. That was no small thing. Egypt was the richest, most powerful, and most influential nation of the time offering wealth, luxuries, and securities like nowhere else in the world for its people, let alone Moses who was adopted by the royal family. However, Moses did not trust in these things. Instead, his Trust His faith really compelled him to trust God in renouncing his sonship as Pharaoh's daughter. But also compelled him to identify with God's people and the mistreatment they received. And he did this, the text says, for at least two reasons. For one, it says he understood the, the true nature of sin. The true nature of, of, of sin's pleasure and the security that it affords. Sin may, in fact, offer us intense pleasure. Sin may, in fact, offer us real delight. This world, the things of this world bring security and comfort. But only for a season. They will not last. They will not satisfy. For they are temporary and fleeting. And Moses knew that. Moses was after something far better. Verse 26 says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now, what does Christ have to do with Moses' rejection of Egypt? given Jesus was born thousands of years later. Well, I think it's clear we're going to see, we've seen throughout this this chapter, and we're going to see as we move into chapter 12, that we've seen all throughout the Bible that the storyline of the Bible squares on the promise of a coming Messiah on Jesus. Moses himself prophesied later that a greater prophet would come to lead God's people in the future. The promises of the old covenant look forward to their fulfillment in the future. We we know it says over and over again that they died looking forward to the promises that would be fulfilled. And all these old covenant promises have come to fulfillment in Christ in the new. By identifying with Israel, Moses was aligning himself with the people whom Jesus Christ identifies with, the righteous who live by faith. And by joining into the people's reproach, Moses was joining himself to Christ and his reproach and the people who follow with that same reproach and suffering as the Son of God did. I think the author here is reminding us of the centrality of Jesus in the biblical storyline and how the, the cross of Christ is the central paradigm for God's people. The cross teaches us that for the Christian, suffering precedes glory. There was no crown apart from the cross for Jesus. There was no glory short of reproach, distress, and suffering unto death. This is our paradigm, brothers and sisters. As the people of God, we must do as Moses did. We reject the comforts and fleeting pleasures of sin to embrace Christ, which often comes with reproach, difficulties, and sufferings in this life. And he did this as verse 27 says, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, I know many of you know your Bibles well, and we studied this chapter at length. We went through the book of Exodus. If you remember back, particularly chapter 2, when Moses killed the Egyptian for beating an Israelite, the text says very clearly and very plainly that Moses fled in fear of Pharaoh's anger. So what do we make of this? Some understand this to to be describing maybe Moses' second time he left Egypt, when he was leading the people out of slavery, not the first time when he left fleeing Pharaoh's anger. I guess that's possible, but I, I don't find that very convincing. I think given the author's repeated emphasis of fear... Or being afraid, we've seen it in verse 23 in reference to Moses' parents. And now in verse 27 in reference to Moses. I believe the author is making an important point regarding faith and its relationship to fear. You've probably heard the phrase, faith over fear. I've seen that on a lot of shirts lately. I agree with that statement, but I do think it needs some qualifying. Which this verse I think helps us with. Well Moses, he did fear the king's anger. That was not the ultimate reality for his life. While Moses' parents did fear the consequence of Pharaoh considering they they hid their son, that did not dictate their actions. Yes, they feared dying, but on a much deeper level, they feared the Lord. They, They trusted Him to protect them and to preserve their lives. That's what the following clause says. For he endured in the face of death, seeing him who is invisible, the end of verse 27 says. So Moses' fear of Pharaoh was overcome by a greater fear of the Lord, the unseen one. By faith, he saw the unseen one as his ultimate protector, deliverer, and the keeper of his soul. Moses was able to conquer his fear of Pharaoh by replacing it with an even greater fear of the Lord. And this he did by faith. Moses possessed the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And this fear would lead Moses to return and stand before Pharaoh. This faith, I should say, or this greater fear, the fear of the Lord would lead him to go back and stand before the very man he was afraid of when he left running and call him to release God's people and eventually allow Moses to lead God's people out of slavery Into the signature event of the exodus, the Passover, as we see in verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The crossing of the Red Sea, Moses and the Israelites, they were spared from the wrath of Pharaoh. but In the Passover, they were spared from the wrath of God through the means of God's covering by the shedding of the blood of a spotless lamb picting and pointing us forward to Jesus as we've looked at many times in this letter. But brothers and sisters, I want to point us out here that the, the life of faith must be fought on the battlefield of our fears. As Ed Welch in his book, um, When People Are Big and God Is Small, he says, Fear in the biblical sense includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe. Being controlled or mastered by people. Worshipping other people. Putting your trust in people. Or just simply needing people. Ever since the fall, fearing man is something we all do instinctively. We care what people think about us. We fear being rejected. We long to be accepted. We fear being exposed. We fear being physically hurt by others. And the reality is our actions are far too often dictated by and bound to our fear of man rather than the fear of the Lord biblical faith faith that perseveres requires us doing battle with our fear of man by fearing the Lord there's some reflective questions here I'll give you a few of them that I ask myself but are you a person who needs people's approval Do you feel like you have to have other people's approval all the time? Do you struggle with the thought of disappointing people? Do you long? Do you find yourself trying to do things and work up ways to be accepted by certain people? If so, man is far too big in your life. And in turn, God is not far big enough in your life. The life of faith is a battle which must be fought. On the battlefield of our fears, persevering faith requires us conquering our lesser fears by a greater fear of the Lord. Persevering faith also also relies on God's power. See this in verse twenty nine and thirty. The author really shifts here his focus from uh, to the to really the two we might say most significant displays of God's power in redemptive history from the Old Testament standpoint, the crossing of the Red Sea and the battle at Jericho. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned, the text says. So following the plagues, Pharaoh was forced to let the people flee Egypt. He had no other choice at that point. However, his pride proved too much for him, and he sent his army in pursuit as kind of a, a a last-ditch effort to slay the Israelites. And as Moses led the people from Egypt, they were forced to the Red Sea, a body of water far too big to cross, at least quickly. And as they began to turn around and try to make another way, they were confronted by the Egyptian army, mounted with chariots and swords in pursuit of them. The Israelites found themselves seemingly trapped between the the raging waters on one side and the raging army of the Egyptians on the other side. And it was Moses who said, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work today. God told them to march forward. He told them they would cross on dry ground. However, somebody had to step their foot out first and everyone else had to follow. They had to make a decision. Would they trust in the wisdom and ways of man, or would they trust in the power of God and step out? Under the leadership of Moses, the people walked on dry ground. They crossed over the Red Sea. But when the Egyptians followed, the waters came crashing down on them, becoming their watery grave. With their lives on the line, the Israelites trusted the Lord and found His deliverance and His power on display. And this great story of deliverance led them right to the first battle of the conquest. The battle of Jericho. Mentioned in verse 30. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. It was here the great military leader Joshua and his army were given the rather strange battle instructions. Just imagine this scene as Joshua gets his troops together and he tells them that they're going to go and take the great city of Jericho and he's got a plan. The Lord's given him a plan. We're going to March around the city today, tomorrow, in fact, for seven days straight. All of us, the men of war in full gear and battle armor, the priests are coming with their trumpets. And on the first six days, we're just going to walk around. We're going to march around quietly. We're going to do nothing. But then there's here comes the great part. On the seventh day, the priests are going to blow their trumpets as we walk around. And then we're all going to give a loud shout. And the walls will fall down and Jericho will be overtaken. Just like the Red Sea. As if their feet were back on the shores of the Red Sea again, the Israelites they had to make another decision. Would they trust the wisdom and ways of man and the warfare strategy that they knew? Or would they trust in God and His power and take Him at His word? And By faith they believed God and they experienced His great power. And connected to the conquest is this story of Rahab next in verse 31. By faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, Before we deal with the details of what's happening here, we have to just admire that our sister Rahab is even included in this chapter. This is Rahab. This is a Canaanite prostitute whom the bible elevates alongside Enoch, father Abraham, and the great Moses. And by and by contrasting her with those who did not believe, the author is presenting her faith as an example of obedience to the word of God we're supposed to follow. When the spies entered Jericho, Rahab hid them from the men of the city, resulting in all of her household being spared when it was destroyed. God had spoken And this Canaanite prostitute believed the word of God. She believed that this God was able to do what he said. So by faith, in the face of death, she aligned herself with the people of God, trusting in God's power to deliver. It was her faith that commended her before God. Not anything about her past. It was her faith that aligned her with the people of God, despite her past. And her inclusion here clarifies the identity of God's people and the nature of God's power. Being a part of God's people comes not by any sort of merit or birth. Though the unbelieving Israelites fell in the wilderness, this believing Canaanite prostitute was saved and accepted by God for her faith. We are the people of God. Because of our faith. We are not the people of God. Because of our lack of faith. The preacher who stands up. Every week to preach the sermon. Is no more significant in the kingdom. Than the one who simply. Slips in the back door. Limping overcome by sin. The blood bought child of God. Overcome with sin. Is no less significant. Than Abraham. Isaac. Jacob. Moses, Paul, Peter, or anyone else in God's kingdom. Our faith and our faith alone in Christ brings us into the company of God's people. But the opposite is just as true. If you try to trust or enter your way into the kingdom on anything other than faith in Jesus Christ, you will be sadly left out in the cold. Not your works... Not your efforts, not your birth, not your parents' grandparents' faith. Your personal faith in Christ and Christ alone brings us into the company of God's people. And faith that perseveres is faith that trusts in God. That's what we see in the Red Sea Crossing. That's what we see through the walls of Jericho crashing down. And that's what we see through our sister Rahab's testimony. Now I want us to remember here the context I do this often, but we have to zoom out and not lose the context of Hebrews. The author is writing to a group of Jewish Christians being persecuted, not necessarily for their faith, but their faith finding fulfillment in Jesus. Like, it's safe to be a Jew in this culture. But to believe in a Jewish Messiah named Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the grave... That is what's bringing ridicule, imprisonment, persecution, and even the threat of death. So the author writes to this group who is needing to make a decision. Just like all the other people of old have done, they stand on the same place and have to make a similar decision. Like their forefathers, will they trust in the wisdom or ways of man, or will they trust in the power of God? Will they choose the life of faith and go forward with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Rahab? Or will they fall in the wilderness like the unbelieving generation before them? The author is reminding them and each of us this morning that choosing the cross of Christ is to align oneself with all God's faithful ones who chose To rest in the power of God, not in the wisdom and ways of man. Paul reminds us, for the word of the cross is folly to this world. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Brothers and sisters, every time we take the Lord's Supper, every time we baptize someone in those waters behind me, we are saying, that our only hope in life and death hangs on the death of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago on a criminal's cross and his resurrection from the grave and his forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of eternal life. The wisdom and ways of this world call that utterly nonsense and foolish. But to us, the righteous who walk by faith, it is the power of God we must cling to. Paul says. This is why my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man. But in the power of God. I'll say one thing. And I, this is for all of us in this room. This is especially for young people. But every one of us in this room. This group of people. In this context, we're being ridiculed for their faith. They're being persecuted. They're being ridiculed. They're being torn down. And they had to make a decision. Would they choose in the wisdom of man and the comfort of this world or would they align themselves with the people of God who have always been at this place? I'm going to say this to us today. It's at our doorsteps. It's here now. We will be ridiculed We will be condemned. We will be cast aside for our sexual ethic as Christians. It's here. It's here. And we will have to make a decision like every other faithful one in the past has had to make a decision. Will we listen to the ways and wisdom of God or will for the ways and wisdom of man or will we trust in the power of God? It's here. It's here for all of us. We better be clear about what we believe. And we better be clear about the power of the gospel. We are foolish people to this world. But we serve a God who was considered foolish in sending his son. We should feel at home in the company of people who are rejected. That is who we are in Christ. Preserving faith, lastly, is perfected through God's son. rely on the power of God, but our preserving faith is also perfected through God's son. The author's rhetorical question, and what more can I say? It makes it clear that the author could really go on and offer a, a myriad of examples. Right? He could make chapter 11 the longest chapter in the Bible. But since time and space is limited, he simply offers something of, maybe we could say a rapid fire of, of, of further examples, clarifying what it actually means to be a part of the people of God. And what shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Barak, Samson, Japheth of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now again, perseverance is the call. Each figure models this. We must remember that perseverance is not the same as Perfection. In terms of in our standard of righteousness in our lives. Perfection in Jesus, not in perfection in our lives. Each one of these brothers and sisters are examples of faith we're to model our lives after. Yet each one of them are fallen, sadly fallen examples. With real failures of sin in their life. Barak lacked uh, faith to to do battle with Deborah. Judges chapter 4. Gideon asked for multiple signs before he believed. Solomon's sexual sins are just too many to list. Samson's sexual immorality and fleshly impulses got him into trouble. Japheth vowed to sacrifice his own daughter. Samuel appointed his boys to serve as priests whom he knew were participating in grave sin and immorality. David, as the leader of the nation, committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. Nothing that's mentioned here. But not because the author is trying to hide anything or downplay anything. That's not the point. Their faith is the point. Their sins and faults are not what's to be remembered, but the faith they displayed unto death is. These all persevere trusting in what they could not see. Believer, it's a ploy of the enemy to cause you to continually stare in the rear view regarding the sin in your past life that you've already confessed and been forgiven for. That is a ploy of the enemy to keep you s- sidelined, stranded, frozen, and looking in the rear view about past sins in your life if they've been confessed by God because they've been forgiven by Christ. As a child of God, we are not defined by our fallenness anymore. We are defined by our faith, which we move forward to our final reward in. Faith, because this faith does produce something though. Even amongst fallen people, right? It makes a difference in this world. Kingdoms were conquered. Justice was enforced. Promises were obtained. Mouths of lions were stopped. Fires were quenched. Death was, was escaped. And the weak were shown strong, putting the world's armies to flight. The author here is not just waxing eloquently with language. He's retelling stories all throughout our Bible. And in at least two cases in the Old Testament, women received their sons back from the dead. And all of these kept trusting God in the midst of suffering, persecution, and pain. Some were tortured, verse 35, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. They, were, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in caves, And dens and caves of the earth. It seems here the author at least has two categories of people in mind here. He gives a referent of some in verse 35 and then those in verse 36. First group may, in fact, be known to the readers. Maybe included in some of the congregation that they know. We're going to get to chapter 13, verse 3, where he's going to call them to remember those in prison. Obviously a, a known group of people amongst them. So in some sense, he seems to begin with experiences speaking uh, of some who were in chains imprisonment, maybe even now. Obviously there was ones in the past, but this is something they know about that's going on now. But then he links these to others in redemptive history who have suffered much worse. But they kept trusting in God. Identifying with the people of God may mean torture. It may mean imprisonment. Mockings. Floggings. It may mean being killed. It may end up leading us to being wandering, destitute, and mistreated. And yet these who went through that, they endured. How did they do that? The rest of chapter 11 tells us. They rested in the promise of God. Of the better life that awaited them. They believe that God awards those who seek Him. They embraced the life of an exile and soldier in this world as they longed for the eternal city who was to come. They were in search of a better homeland, an eternal one, an abiding one, as the author said. They knew, like Abraham, that God was able to raise them from the dead even if they died. And yet they died, as verse 39 says, look at it, he repeats this, and they died having not received the promise. And all these, though commended through their faith, Did not receive what was promised. Now, the author's here. He's now tying this chapter together. Going back to the beginning, he's kind of bringing us full swing. By verse 39, it says, And all these were commended by their faith. Which takes us back up to verse 2. Remember where we started with. He gave a definition of faith. And then in verse 2, he talked about The author spoke of the people of old who were all commended by their faith. So now he's wrapping all of this back up together. He's coming full circle here, highlighting this tension that's been been underneath or maybe we could say behind this whole chapter. The tension being that by faith in God's promises, all the saints of Old Testament were commended. They were all accepted by God, though they died. Not seeing the promises fulfilled. While many promises had come to pass. The great promises. Of entering into God's presence. Of God being their God. And them being his people. And them dwelling with him in the land. And them having a heavenly city. A a new Jerusalem. That was all left unfulfilled for them. But why? Verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us. That apart. From us, they should not be made perfect. The author makes really an, he points to an indissolvable unity between the people of God in the Old Covenant and the New. They'll tell you about something about my theological categories. I, I see a connection here, indissolvable unity between the Old and New Testament here, the saints. He's saying, we need their faith. We need the persevering faith of Noah. We need the persevering faith of Enoch, of Moses, of Abraham, of our sister Rahab. All those who died without receiving the promises of the old covenant. But they need the benefits that are ours in Christ in the new. No one was made perfect under the old covenant because Christ had not yet died. They receive salvation by faith, but their salvation would not be made perfect until Jesus' work on the cross. Perfection comes through Jesus, as chapter 10, verse 14 said, by a single offering of Christ on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being saved. Notice the point he's making to this suffering church. He's speaking to this suffering church of Jewish believers. He's saying, if if you want to remain faithful, like your forefathers, you're talking about going back to the old covenant. Let me point you to their faith. If you want to be faithful like your forefathers, you cannot turn back. For you have what they longed for. They endured, they persevered for for the perfection that you now possess. That we now possess in Jesus. He's saying, we know the fear of the Lord because... We know Jesus. We know the power of God and the person and work of Jesus on the cross. We we possess perfection in Jesus. We've been cleansed. We've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We have access into His very presence through Jesus. And suffering, difficulty, and rejection in dark nights of the soul should not lead us to feel estranged as the people of God but at home amongst the people of God, amongst God's faithful ones, throughout redemptive history. It's a lie from the pit of hell to believe in the midst of our difficulty, our suffering, our pain, our anguish, that we are alone. We're in the company of God's people, the faithful ones, who endure. And how did they endure? How do we endure? We turn the page to chapter 12, verse 1. I'm not going to preach next week's sermon, I promise. But listen to these words now. After all that we've went through in chapter 11, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we've just heard them all and many, many more. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. By faith we endure because the faithful one endured on our behalf. By faith we cling to our perfection because Jesus, the perfect one, Has made us perfect. The end of Charles Spurgeon's life, battered with physical ailment, battered with public controversy, which drove him into bouts of depression. Really, his controversy that was over him standing strong for Orthodoxy when the Baptist union he was a part of was drifting. During that time, he had, didn't know he would never preach again to his church, but he was away trying to get... Often he would go away and try to get some health and come back. But he, he gave a short address to a small group of friends on a, on a New Year's Eve, just a few days before he entered glory, and he closed it with these words of a hymn. He said, The, the sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've, I've signed for. The fair, sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight. But day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwellers in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, He is the fountain. The deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted. More deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean fullness, his His mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwellers In Emmanuel's land. Brothers and sisters. we've, We've been venturing through chapter 11. I said at the beginning. The danger of chapter 11. Is that we. We go no farther than these individual people in chapter 11. Each one of these brothers and sisters mentioned in chapter 11. All the more that could be mentioned. Every faithful one in our past. Throughout church history. And throughout our lives that We know they're meant to point us to the faithful one, Jesus. Today, if you're here, sinner, stuck in your sin, you don't know Christ, you need a way out, look to Jesus. See Him, bloody, tattered, hanging on the cross for your sin. Receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life that he offers by faith. Be bold enough to repent, to confess to God what he already knows about you that you're a sinner who needs his grace, and receive afresh the grace of Christ today. Suffer and saint today. Look to Jesus. See him bloody, tattered on the cross, hanging in your place. No, you are never alone in your suffering. Christ has been there. And so are the saints of old who followed Him. And we will enter glory. Provided that we suffer with Him. That we may be glorified with Him. Weary soul, struggling today. Trying to figure out what the next step is. Look to Jesus. He endured. He's the author. He's the perfecter of our faith. Cry out to him today. Because by faith we persevere through this life with the people of God in the company of God's people by the perfection that we know to be ours in Christ God's Son. Father, we God, I thank you for Hebrews chapter eleven. Thank you for the joy it's been for my soul. God, I pray for our church. I pray for those who I know, many who are suffering and struggling in different seasons of life. All of us in one sense are battling our sin in this life. Battling our self-righteousness and our desire to seek our own kingdom. God, I pray you would get us out of ourselves and help us look beyond ourselves to see Jesus. God, we thank you. That by faith we can persevere. By faith we can endure because you endured for us. Help us not be lured away. Help us not to be deceived by the enemy to think that when we're rejected, when we're by ourselves, when we're suffering, that somehow we're alone and everything's lost and everything's gone. No. Let us believe our Bibles. Let us look to those faithful saints who came before us. Let us hold on to our reward that we will have in Christ. And God, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you today that they would not delay. It's faith and faith alone. Because it's not just the raging waters on one side and the army on the other. It is the wrath of God do their sin. And might they receive covering by the blood of the Lamb today. God, we love you. We thank you. And now as we sing a new song that we haven't sung, might we sing loudly, confessing from our gut, Christ is our King. Let us see the destined day arise and sing hallelujah of the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray.